Well, hello, everyone. Welcome to another edition of the latest Shiny podcast. This is your co-host, Stephen Spector. And with me, of course, is Rob Hirschfeld. Good afternoon, Rob. Good afternoon, Stephen. So, I, I, you know, I was saying that a few podcasts ago, Rob, we were talking about we were going to add some sort of uh, music intro, and we were unsure. So I'm going to blame the current uh, coronavirus for the mm. lack of music intro to the uh, podcast. I created a great <laughs> news excuse. Um, I was unable to find the right music. Although I, I, I can I can make suggestions, but they're completely inappropriate. Um, and I, I, think, I, I don't think I want to start the show on that. So, so uh, I, it's still I, I like us. I like I like the you know welcome to the latest shiny from you. I think that's a great start. So uh, and no one has complained that they want music yet on our Twitter feed. But if you're interested, go out there and let us know. But uh, I am still looking around. I did find some ping pong ping pong ping pong pinball machine noises which i thought were good but that they just seem ping pong would be nice too ping pong, pong is kind of too, but it's kind of irrelevant so anyway all right yeah. we have a guest holding so let me let me stop. <laughs> and uh then we have a really great guest today i'm really excited we have uh cory scobie who is the chief technology technology officer at chef software cory welcome to the podcast uh thanks for having me and uh, I would say, Rob, notice CTOs coming on the podcast. So uh, we are stepping up in the world for our audiences. And I would also uh, say, Corey, it looks like this is going to be our 150th podcast. And it is a pleasure to have you on for that. This is be a, a milestone podcast for us. And um, it doesn't mean that, uh, you know, Rob or I will do better than we usually do, but I think it'll come out the same. As I don't know. Always. I'm feeling the pressure now. I'm no, no. The, 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 the pressure is on Rob and I. So, Corey, if you can just give us a quick background about yourself, a um, little bit about Chef, and then we'll jump into a bunch of different topics. Sure. Um, I, as you mentioned, Corey Scobie, I'm the CTO at Chef. I've been with the company for uh, just a little over two years now. Uh, prior to Chef, I spent some time at Akamai and, and uh, IBM and a series of other small and, and medium-sized startups, mostly in the enterprise software and infrastructure uh, space for the majority of my career. So um, been at Chef, as I said, for two years. And uh, as most people know Chef, um, most people will know Chef as the, you know, one of the original sort of infrastructure as code software companies that helped spark the the automation revolution at the beginning of the DevOps era. Um, and we, you know, spent a lot of time in the last couple of years diversifying and adding more to our product portfolio than that, but um, looking forward to digging in. And by the way, I should mention, I, I think I have a suggestion for intro music. If in the current state of the world, you might consider some like Rob Zombie or something like that. I don't know. <laughs> Rob, Rob Zombie. I do like that. That's a good idea. I'll go searching. <laughs> Could roll it. We could change them up a little bit. Um, it's good. I, I was a longtime Chef user. We actually, the first versions of the, the product that we're building now are actually built around Chef uh, 10 years ago. Don't, don't yeah, use Chef, it anymore. But. Chef, I mean, the, the original project was, was minted, I think, back in 2008, and, and the company was sort of formed in 2009 around it. And, and obviously, one of the most... Um, broadly used automation platforms for for sort of baselining infrastructure and getting and, and managing large fleets of uh, of compute out there. So yeah, uh, revolutionary. Chef, yeah, still going strong too. You know, I mean, we still have. Uh, we're, as a matter of fact, we're releasing Chef 16 
the, the 16th major version of Chef um, goes out in April this year. So continue to, to roll on that. Wow. Um, but I know that Chef as a company, it's, it's funny because, right, originally it was Ops Code and Chef and Chef was the product. And then you moved back to being Chef as the company. And then you diversified the product mix to be more products. How, how broad is that mix now? Yeah, so we, um, so we obviously have the, the original Chef product, which we now refer to as Chef Infrastructure to, to simply try and um, delineate between Chef the company and, and Chef the product, so right. Chef Infra. Um, we also have a security and compliance automation product that is, all of our products are built on the same philosophy that, that the original Chef project was built on, which is um, things should be expressed as code, and if you express them as code, then you can automate them. And so we have a security and compliance automation product called Chef Inspec, which is really about being able to define security and compliance as software tests and move them as far left in the DevOps pipeline as, as possible. Um, so you have not just security and compliance in your production environment, but all the way back through the, the entire stack. And then we have our latest product um, or project and also product is Chef Habitat. And Chef Habitat was actually born out of years of, of experience in using Chef to not just conform and, and create baseline configurations for infrastructure, but also to be able to deploy software and software stacks on top of those, that infrastructure. And uh, over the years realized that that's a challenging problem that has a, that is really mostly gets caught up in dependency management. And so we created the Chef Habitat project to, to try and address that. And, and Chef Habitat is um, probably the product in our overall enterprise automation stack that is seeing the most explosive growth and uptake right now. Interesting. And, and I know Habitat's been out for a while, like it's seven, seven years old from the initial architectures, I think, when I first started hearing about it. Um, I, I mean that no, it's 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 younger than that. I think okay. the original Habitat project was was minted in 2016, but the first couple okay. of years were really incubation, and and there wasn't, you know, much there in terms of a usable framework. In in 2018, we really released, I think, the first commercial or the most the the first usable version of the of the Habitat stuff. Although as an open source project, as you know. Like there's lots of people that get their fingers into it early and, and sort of tinker around with it. Um, but mm -hmm. yeah, 2018 was really what we consider the commercial launch of, of Habitat. That, that's good to know. Cause I think that, you know, for somebody like me, who's heard of Habitat before understanding that there was a major update, major revision, uh, recent, you know, in, in, in relatively recent timeframes is an important thing to understand. I, I mean, I, I know, products go through these major revolutions in, in how they, how they progress. Um, and the, the original aspect of Habitat, it was, you know, very graph and dependency oriented, sort of like systems building their own, um, you know, application service mesh. Is that a, is that right? What, how would you describe Habitat now? Yeah, there's, I mean, there's an aspect to it about that. I mean, really the core of Habitat is to try and create an abstraction between an application and its dependencies and the underlying compute architecture that it's gonna run on. So if you think about it from an operating system perspective, you've got an OS, which has a kernel, and then immediately above the kernel, you've got system libraries and then 
packages and all of the dependencies, middleware and all the things that get up to all the, that build all the way up to the top level. What Habitat right. was, re, what makes Habitat really unique is it basically inverts that dependency model. So typically in the old world of infrastructure automation, chef inspect or chef uh, puppet, Ansible, etc. You would take a system, you lay down a baseline operating system, and then you'd start layering on all of these individual layers of, um, of software. The system libraries had to be the right system libraries that would work with the application package that you were deploying. Yeah, very fragile. You had to get, you had to manage all the package dependencies and all of that kind of stuff. And eventually you'd get up to the app and doing that from the bottom up. Um, it is always a very fragile exercise. And what Habitat really does is it inverts that whole model. It says, tell me about the application and in one code artifact, one coded artifact, which we call a Habitat plan file, you can define the application and the application's top line dependencies. And then the system will build a graph of all the transients and downstream dependencies all the way down to basically the kernel level of the operating system. And it will create a unified package of all of those dependencies that is then portable across multiple environments. So that's the first part of Habitat, which is how do you create a package of things that ensures that whatever environment you put the application into, it will run successfully because it, it travels with all of its dependencies. So, and then so the second, just, second part of it, sorry. Go ahead. You, yeah. you mentioned no, the second, second part, part of it. Yeah, the second part of it is around, the, is around deployment topologies and, and complexity. And so one of the things that Habitat does do is it does support sort of a native, I wouldn't call it quite service mesh, but maybe service mesh light kind of architecture where you can do uh, dependency um, discovery and all of that kind of stuff in a multi-component environment or, or service like, mesh kind of like from a from a because one of the things that I that I thought was that there's a piece here where you're trying to run services and Habitat is going to you know bring up that service and make sure it's available. I mean, is, is there a yes. You know, a component of sort of, you know, I, I'm keeping the service running. If I lose an instance, I move, I bring up another instance of the service or if I'm overloaded, I bring up another instance to load shed. That's correct. So, so Habitat also, um, part of the architecture, the deployment architecture is you can take a Habitat package and you can deploy it natively on any environment in a, you know, bare metal or a VM or a container or whatever. If you if you deploy it in sort of a, a VM or bare metal environment, you deploy it via something called the supervisor, the Habitat supervisor, which is in fact the orchestrator on on board that environment. I think what's really unique and interesting about the way that Habitat does that is the supervisor is in fact a sidecar and not a process wrapper. So in other words, when the application executes in its native environment, um, the operating system sees it as a native application and there's just this sidecar orchestrator off to the side that deals with service up service down orchestration um, report back to the the ring to tell what the health of all the various different services is that kind of stuff so there is an like i say service mesh light that's how i would describe it makes sense so the the thing that's that naturally comes to mind to me on this is going to be you know sort of the the grill in the room which would be Docker, Kubernetes, service scheduling, right? I mean, one of the things that Docker provides to me, one of the big things that a, a container provides is, you know, you don't solve the dependency problem the way you're describing solving it, which I think is really interesting from a plan perspective, but you're basically doing all the work, stuffing in a container, and then that's an immutable object. So you're like, yeah, I, I, I do have this dependency hell, but 
I've made it go away by putting it in a locked box. Yeah. How, how, yeah, I, is, how is this different or is this complimentary? Yeah, it, I think it's actually complimentary to be, to be honest. I think so the practical reality of what we see um, in customers, enterprise customers in particular, they're adopting container uh, technologies and container architectures is uh, there's two main themes. One is that they, um, they're sort of applying old school thinking to their container environments, which means that they're building baseline containers to give to application developers to then layer their applications into. And of course, the baseline containers have all kinds of junk in them, right? Like all kinds of things that you need to operationalize things at scale in an enterprise IT environment. Um, but what that leads to is a lot of container bloat. And so you get containers that are very in, uh, that are very unoptimized for the kind of microcompute environment that they're going into. One of the ways the habitat is very complementary to that is that um, when you build and deploy a habitat package to a Kubernetes cluster or, or a Docker um, cluster as an example, the, the package that habitat builds that becomes the container contains really just the very basics of what you need to operate that application um, successfully. And the way that we do that is that when you do the build process that actually creates the container, you do it in a clean room. You basically do it with the most stripped down version of whatever baseline operating system it is that you're going to run on the other end. And so we, we, one of the advantages or that we see with Habitat is that customers that you uniformly use Habitat don't have a lot of disparity in what their container patterns and therefore their container operationalization looks like. On the other end, what they get is very uniform containers with, with very, very compact and um, high-performing packages that represent the applications. That's, so that's so one you, aspect. Yeah, no, it makes because I mean, at some point with the way I've, I'm seeing Kubernetes stuff being done, you're ba you know, they don't care about what's in that container. And so you're, you're almost shipping a virtual machine um, at some point around right. to make those containers work. It's so unopinionated about hygiene for the containers. It's just like, yeah, stuff whatever you need in and, and then we'll, we'll, we'll run it for you. Um, yeah, where does where Precisely. does that sit? Because there's still an orchestrate. You still need to orchestrate and and keep all these services up, which is the orchestrator yeah. for Habitat. Yeah, I I think like at the end of the day, when we created Habitat, we realized that there were going to be multiple. It would the whole world wasn't going to be just containers, although that is clearly you know one of the predominant architectural um, implementations. I think we created a version of that 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 is a simpler operationalization version that you can use if that's all you need in order to deploy an application. But if you're gonna deploy it to a container in a, in a workload scheduled environment, which by the way, I think is fantastic. We ourselves are building, you know, generations of our own software and architecture targeted at, at container containerization and managing um, mm -hmm. workload scheduled services. So like we're hundred percent on board with that at Chef. I think, the challenge that we see a lot of customers having is, is really sort of less about the underlying container technology. Although I will say that it's, you know, take a, your typical application that wasn't designed for a container stuff in a container and add it into a container operated environment. You've added a lot of complexity to the operational model of deploying something that's pretty simple. So that is a challenge across the breadth of different apps that, that most enterprises are, are sort of managing. We, and, we do see and, a, go ahead. go ahead. I was just gonna say, we do see a pattern of, of this is that like 
enterprise IT has gone through this period of democratization of decision making, and and, and part of that mm-hmm. has been the Kubernetes revolution. And so, you know, CIOs and CTOs all over the place have sort of taken off the the chains from customer or from their teams being able to choose a bunch of different technologies. And what they're finding now is on the back end of that first cycle of cloud native and and container native sort of application development is that they've got a lot of disparity in the patterns that were chosen. And so therefore (laughs) operationalizing at scale is really, really hard. And so I believe, and we believe at Chef that we're actually coming into a period from a DevOps perspective, from a containers and operations, IT operations perspective, a period of reconsolidation a little bit where you can't operationalize thousands and thousands of patterns, right? You just can't do it. And I agree. This is one of the things that I've seen in the Kubernetes world is people end up with this explosion of clusters because the different distros have different behaviors or different people have different requirements or they use the clusters in different ways or now with the CRD pattern, you could be defining objects that you need and could have name. Uh, it's, it's, it's a huge mess. Um, and the other thing that I'm, I'm seeing a trend towards is Kubernetes is complex. I, I, anybody who wants to argue with me is crazy. It, it is complex and it's not the only way to solve the problem. So I think there's, you know, there is a, um, there's always been, you know, anybody, the, this I, Kubernetes now is, is the only thing to do ever anyway is it's a little bit over, over selling it. Yeah. I, you know, I was in a conversation recently where, um, and I won't name any names, but there was a, a, a gentleman in that conversation that was on the inside of, of the SRE team at Google and was mm. commenting on Google's own GKE service on Google cloud was one of the most complex services with the least, um, availability uptimes, like with lower availability uptime statistics than most of their other services. And it's because it's it's super hard to run, right? Like particularly yeah. when you don't bound what you put in it, it's unbounded it's unbounded workloads into a bounded environment. So Yeah, I've been, I don't want to drill down on it. We, we do this fun little Raspberry Pi cluster called an Edge Lab, but even just even in that cluster, it's not as simple to get all, all the things working. Um, but infrastructure never is. And so I want to make sure that there, there's a couple of topics that we want to cover. Habitat's super interesting, um, but this is part of a broader, you know, it's, it's one, of, one of three parts of a stack for you. Um, and I want to make sure that people at least understand the whole stack, even though we don't have as much time to go through it. Can you, can you give us a little bit about inspect and infra? Yeah, sure. So, um, so in addition to Habitat, so application packaging and deployment is obviously a challenge where, you know, we address that with Habitat as, as our core technology there. Um, with InSpec, one of the things that we're finding is that security is becoming more and more of a concern of the IT operations organizations, right? It's not that it hasn't been a concern in the past, but the current landscape of cybersecurity and all of the threat matrix and, and everything has, has created more of a desire to create compliant and and continually tested and compliant oriented compliance oriented um, infrastructures and deployments, and so we created Inspec um, quite a few years ago. So I think the company and the project started in 2016 and and really went out commercial in 2017. Inspec is essentially a testing framework, and much like Chef for infrastructure automation, gives you a simple way to be able to express 
compliance tests or security validation tests um, in, a, in a simple DSL um, and to be able to run those tests on demand at any point in time. So what, we're, what we've been working on at Chef is actually not just infrastructure automation and compliance, but the combination of those two things being how do I deploy um, secure, consistently validated and compliant systems from the get-go and then manage them through their entire life cycle. So we call it, the, the loop that we call it is, is DCA, but Detect, Correct, Automate, which is run a, a compliance scan against your system, itemize all the things that are out of compliance, and then automatically remediate them with configuration management actions that are coupled with all of those things. And so we've been producing a very turnkey solution for the last year um, at Chef specifically for this automatic remediation loop, which is CIS profiles, which have started to become the de facto standard for how companies measure their security and compliance standards from a systems perspective. So hmm. we've got a whole set of content, which is out of the box CIS profiles for all of the operating systems and a lot of various different popular sort of middleware and infrastructure um, oriented solutions. And then automatic remediation um, cookbooks that are all configurable. So you can go to a CIS profile and say, I do or don't care about an individual control, turn it on or off. And the result of that is that when you deploy that across your fleet of things, if it's, if you do care about it and it's turned on, then the system will automatically be reconfigured to be compliant with that control. That so makes a lot of it's sense. That's a, that's, really a, that's a really big deal. So then if somebody's created, and I remember this being something in, in Chef way back that was powerful, is that you could create and maintain just the user accounts or access controls and privileges on a system and then enforce it because of the, you know, the agent coming back and sweeping the systems for, for compliance. So what right. you're saying is now you have a way to profile, this is what I want the configuration to look like, Set you know, sort of in, inspect it, and then leverage existing tools and infrastructures to then enforce it backwards. That makes, That's or exactly. actually can control that. So you get both sides. You can say, hey, I'm out of compliance. If somebody just wants the alert, they can take it. Or right. you can say, and by the way, I've remediated that, that change. Okay. Yes, how do I take action against it? And how do I do that at scale across you know, large fleets of infrastructure? So. Makes sense. And I can see how all those, all those pieces fit together as a suite. Yeah. Yeah. So we, cool. so really when we look at it from a stack perspective, we've got chef infra, which is really about operating system management and configuration. And then we've got app habitat, which is about application packaging and deployment management. And we've got chef inspect, which is about validating the entirety of that stack, the apps and the, and the infrastructure configuration all the way top to bottom. And the three of those things come together to what we call today, the enterprise automation stack. So we wanted to save a little bit of time to talk about um, an anniversary for you, um, for Chef, uh, which was related to this, this really big change where you took Chef, all of the software open source, yes. um, which, which you know, was part of this powder keg of 2019 open source um, uh, discussion, churn, license changes, but yours was a little bit different. Um, I'd love to hear, you know, you give us an update on, on sort of some background so people, you know, re remember what it was, but I'd love to have the year, in, year, 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 one year check-in. 
Yeah, that's great. It, it, um, it was a powder keg year, wasn't it? I mean, really, open yeah. source was a... <laughs> There was a lot going on uh, with respect to open source and, and particularly business models around open source and licensing around open source. So for us at Chef, if you, you know, if you go back in time to to pre-April of 2019, before we sort of made our license change announcements, um, the state of, of Chef was that we had we had three separate open source projects, Chef, Inspect and Habitat. Um, they were all born at different periods in time. And... Um, really, when somebody asked a simple question like, what's free and what's commercial, or what's um, open source and what's proprietary, the answer was extremely nuanced and extremely complex across and different for each of those different projects, because they all were at different levels of maturity. Um, and so, you know, the side effect of that for us as a software development organization is every time we came up with an idea for a new feature or capability, we had to ask ourselves, which are we going to put this into the proprietary um, part of our, our product offering? Are we going to put this into the open source part of our product offering? And that was often, that answer was often influenced, not by the right place to put the technology, but what the downstream potential business impact might be. Um, and so, at the end of the day, um, the short answer is that we made an announcement in April 2019 that uh, is almost a year old now, and it, it's actually the anniversary has an important element to it. So in April 2019, we announced that we were going 100% open source software development at Chef, which meant that all of the proprietary software was um, going to be open source, which it, it was immediately afterwards. Um, and all of our source code is... Uh, Apache 2 licensed. So we, we uniformly created an uh, environment where all of our software development is done in the open in collaboration with customers and users around the world. Um, col collaborative or, or co coordinated with that from a timing perspective, we also ended um, a practice that we had previously, which was to produce a free Apache 2 distribution of our software. So mm -hmm. we essentially decided that we would commit all of our intellectual property to open source um, and to make the commercial packages of software that we created um, be the, the core of our release engineering uh, activities. And so- Which is a very Red Hat-like model from that perspective. Exactly, it's, yeah. it's, it's very Red Hat. It's, I won't say that we modeled it after Red Hat, but after, you know, but we certainly looked around the industry to see what the different options were. And for mm -hmm. us, this was, was the right choice because it stayed true to our open source roots. And we really do believe that you make the best software when you collaborate with people that actually use it on the ground. And the best way to do that is to do it in the open. And then the flip side of that is that we saw definitely saw demand for more and more customers wanting to understand and how to differentiate between what's commercial and what's free. And so, so simply so put, I'm, our I'm curious about that. Yeah. Commercial. Yeah, our, yeah. Our turnkey packages are all commercial at this point. Which makes sense. So what you're what you're saying is that all the code's open, but we are the ones who produce the distribution. If you're using, you know, if you're if you're downloading Chef, any Chef product, and using it, you are using licensed software or commercial software. Um, license, license is a weird word in this case, but commercial software. Um, so it's if somebody wanted, they could go build their own binaries and use whatever they wanted, but you're saying if you're downloading it and you're get you're getting it, you're using that's ultimately a commercial thing, right? 
Exactly, exactly. And, and, you know, what I mean, the community has actually um, started to work on some projects around creating free distributions of the software. Mm -hmm. We've been collaborating with them um, for about a year on it. And they've got some versions of, of software out the door now. And I suspect that there'll be more uh, coming so down. It's like the CentOS, the CentOS variant from that perspective. Kind, kind of, ex kind of exactly. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. You know, which is, um, and, and we, and the way that we've, um, been been working with the community at large on that is that we've been we're all working off the same source code so rather than fork it into a separate project and, and sort of go our separate ways and try and figure out how to merge across the two projects we've we've all agreed to just try and work off a single source whereby we can produce chef from that source and they can produce their community version of it which can't be called chef but is called sync in this case for for chef infra Okay. I, I guess it just strikes me because, I mean, we've dealt with, you know, Racken's dealt with this problem. You got people who are just using software that you're spending a lot of effort to build and sustain, and they're just, you know, taking actions to avoid paying you. Is that a, how, you know, how, uh, yeah, do, you, you know, how do you square I mean, that circle? Yeah. Ultimately, at the end of the day, what we've done is we we definitely have sort of put in place, um, if people want to stay current with the latest innovations that we're putting, that Chef is putting into the project and then producing distributions out of, um, their option is to, is to mint a commercial license with us. So we've made it harder to use quote unquote free as in beer software. Um, the community is coming along and, and building a distribution that, that they think will be the right fit for the distribution. Of course, they don't have you know, hundreds of software engineers like I do working on it. So it's, you know, it moves at the pace of, of community development. Um, but I think that's a good outcome for everybody that's involved in. And one of the things that you do get as an open source software company is it makes the uptake of your technology easier. And so we've actually put some provisions into the licensing of our distribution that make it easy for even enterprise companies to still take it and learn about it, use it, experiment with it. But once they right. start to deploy it in a commercial sense, then they're, then they're obligated to have a, a commercial relationship with us or use a different distribution. Right. So this made things simpler because there was no longer the, the internal conversation. Is this the open, is this open or is this something we're holding back from that perspective? Internal and external, right? If okay. a customer asked me today, what's free? The answer is all of my intellectual property, hundred percent of it. <laughs> if they ask me what's commercial, it's, all of my turnkey downloadable distributions of the software are commercial. Yeah, I, I don't find that less confusing. Um, <laughs> sorry, I, I it is I I see what you're saying, right? It's you know, hey, you can see everything we build, but at the end of the day, the there is an expectation that customers are paying for software. I mean, I, I think Chef, I, I I liked what you did because I think it is very clear. You you are unambiguously saying we expect you to pay for our software. Yes. If you're going right. to use it in a commercial sense, we expect you to pay for it. And, and this to me is one has been one of the problems with open source is that we do give these conflicting messages where it's like, well, it's open source software. It's free to use. It's like, no, no, no. It's open source software, but it's commercial software. Those are not in conflict. I, and, and the way Chef resolved this conflict, I, I, I think is, is important and notable. Um, it sounds like it's you're happy with the solution. Oh, we're super happy. Customers are super happy. We definitely have felt, and the community 
you know, is has stepped up and done their thing to to create um, versions of the software that are free, and and none of that is in conflict with one another. So I we definitely feel good about it. I think the the anniversary element is that um, when we announced this last year, we announced that we will you know the last supported versions of of free oh, right. distributions of Chef will go end of life in April of um, 2020. So we're approaching that we're approaching that milestone now and you know everybody's sort of getting their houses organized on that front interesting does that mean removing you're removing the binaries too or did the binaries no, we're not going to go away we're not going to we're not going to remove okay. the binaries we're not going to go away they're always going to be free and available but we're just going to set like we're just not going to put security updates or patches or anything into it um, oh, 14 okay. or anything prior so you know because right, so, you had so you means, support contracts for people on older versions and so you were you would maintain them by end of lifing them what you're saying is you need to move into the commercial binaries yeah. From yes. that perspective. Which is a yeah, natural, which is natural software lifecycle, right? I don't support all software. We don't support all software for all time. We support the most two most recent versions of software, and so mm -hmm. there's nothing unnatural about that, other than the fact that if you were using the free stuff before and not paying, and now you want to use the the next version of it, you're going to have to make a choice. About yeah, you might you might call me hardcore if you're using the free version in production and not paying for it. I, you're not you're you're we got problems anyway, <laughs> right? I mean, that's if, if you're expecting support and new versions of the software and things like that on the free version, you're free riding. Um, if it's in production, if it's not in production, it's a lab or something, go, go for it. I love community use like that. As soon as you start running, you know, cash generating workloads on it, you, you need to make sure you're, you're funding the stack that you, your customers depend on. Yeah, yeah and I, to be perfect. You can tell I'm opinionated there. Yeah, you can, to be perfectly honest, Rob, we haven't heard much, if any, pushback on that front at all either. Most enterprise users of software, open source or not, expect to have to pay some kind of commercial licensing associated with it if they want support and indemnity and warranty and all of the things that go with a typical commercial relationship. And I think that is the heart of the, the, heart of the thing. The people who are willing to pay for software, pay for software. Mm -hmm. um, I'll be interested to see what happens with the, the, the people who are forking, who, um, you know, are trying to bypass and, it, you know, I believe your license does not allow somebody to commercialize the Apache. You, you did make a change to the license enough to say, hey, you can't fork this code and create a competing product, or is that not a restriction? It's not a restriction. It's an Apache 2 license, standard Apache 2 license, so there's nothing unique about that. Um, Chef, unlike, and so one of the things that's unique about Chef that I think is similar to Red Hat in that um, we are the, we are in fact the trademark holders on all of the projects. So they don't uh, emanate from a free Apache project mm. or anything like that. Like so Apache, yeah, um, Apache project does have some trademark right. um, things that cause, cause challenges. Yeah. Right. And so for somebody to take one of our projects and, and, um, create fork it to create a commercially uh to, to create a commercial version of the software that they might take to the world um they they can't call it chef because we hold the trademark on chef and we're the ones that um produce the package called chef so they would have to call it something else makes sense and then and then you wouldn't accept their patches and then they would actually be an hard fork at that point not a friendly I, fork or a I, I, I guess I guess most likely. I mean, I I, I don't want to speculate on 
what might happen if that occurs. But as of right now, like I said, all of our, we are all operating, us in the community at large are all operating off the same upstream. And like, that isn't actually an issue that we're considering or contending with right now. So Rob, so Rob, you just killed our secret idea we've been thinking of uh, forking the whole thing. <laughs> Sorry, I didn't say that out loud. We're, we're still going. Well, Corey and Rob, this is uh, where I have to come in. Um, great discussion today. Really good. Uh, Corey, I love the open source stuff. I think it's uh, interesting. The I don't want to say anti-foundation. Uh, as people who listen know, I'm not a huge fan of foundations. I actually like the idea you have where you own the trademarks and there isn't some separate foundation. I yeah, that's been, I mean, I, I wish I could take any credit for that, but I'll have to, you know, give credit to Adam and the founders at Chef that <laughs> were, were those smart ones to figure out how to, you know, set the company up to be successful, both commercially and as an open source community member as well. Yeah, yeah it'd I like be worth getting one. Adam Adam on to, he's a good Rankcast person. Okay, well, to, we will. Um, <laughs> well, to, let's to talk we'll, now that it's been a year. It's been a year, so let's get him back on. Well, Corey, thank you He's again. He doesn't have any opinions. None. Held at all. Very <laughs> and, mild, and Corey, mild person. All right, Rob, I, I've Sorry. got it. You know, we're going over. Gonna end it. I have Crossing. to end it. So, Corey, thank you again. And in the midst of the cast, and I know, you know, you're over in, are you in San Francisco lockdown, Corey? I am. Yeah, I'm in the East okay. Bay, uh, San Francisco. Yeah. So uh, everyone be safe, uh, you know, just a few seconds on the virus. Everyone, please be careful. By the time this comes out, it will be two weeks along. So, I, you know, I have no idea what it's going to look like. But uh, here in Idaho, they might actually tell us to worry about it. It hasn't quite hit yet, but maybe it will. But uh, thanks again to our listeners. We hope you enjoy this podcast as usual. If you want to participate, if you disagree on something or want to talk open source things, reach out to us. Uh, with us being home so much now, we have plenty of time to record lots of podcasts. Uh, thanks to both of you, and uh, look forward to talking to you again soon. Thanks, thanks so much Steve. for having me, guys.